listening to the official podcast of Oasis Community Church, where everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and anything's possible. If you'd like to learn more about Oasis, request prayer, or get in touch with a pastor, visit our website at oasischurch.org. Enjoy the podcast. Good morning, Oasis. I hope you're doing well. This will be the last sermon I'm able to give while we're living here in Florida. And so I want to start by saying how grateful we are, my family and I, for Robbie and Angela and all of you. You've been family to us in all kinds of ways, both when we arrived, while we were here, and as we're leaving. So I I hope you know that I'm deeply grateful for that. And I don't think that our leaving ends this relationship. It, It changes it in some ways, obviously, but our hearts will always be with you, and we'll always be paying attention to what you're saying and doing, and hopefully be able to visit many times and stay in touch in all kinds of ways. Uh, so I wanted, I wanted to start with that. The, the texts for this week are, are texts that I think call us to a surprising response. At least I sense them calling me to a surprising response to this moment. Of course, it, it's a mistake to say that this present moment is a new difficulty. It, it, it may be new to us. We may be newly aware of it and feeling the difficulty in new ways. There may be new difficulties emerging for us. But the difficulty of racism and all that goes with racism, of course, is as old as we are and much older. Our parents spent their entire lives locked within it. Our grandparents did and their grandparents did. I mean, this, this is not a new problem. It's not a new pain. It's not new suffering. And some of us are newly experiencing it, coming aware of it, at least coming aware of it more fully than we've ever been before. But it's important, I think, to acknowledge that it's an old problem. And we are late in sensing it. That's important, I think, to say, because the text, in particular the text of the story of Abraham and Sarah and the visitation from the Lord, is a text that reminds us of how easy it is to be overwhelmed when we come aware of a problem that is too much for us. So so in the story, Genesis 18, Abraham is sitting in his tents and the Lord appears to him. And the, and the text is purposely ambiguous what, in terms of what that means. The Lord appears to him, we're told, and yet Abraham sees three men. And at some points in the story, it is the angel of the Lord who speaks. At other times, it is the men themselves who speak, seemingly in concert. And then at times it simply says, the Lord speaks. But that ambiguity is a witness to the mystery of God's presence with us. And and what's crucial is that Abraham sees these three men in the heat of the day and rushes out to care for them. He, He shows hospitality. And as you've heard me say, you've heard Robbie say so many times, hospitality is critical, always critical, that God is always present to us. It's our hospitality that makes us aware of how present he always was. So that when we, when we open our lives up to the stranger, what we find out is 
God has always been near to us, and we were the ones strange to him and who wrongly thought of him as a stranger. And this is why Jesus says at the end, what, what you did to the least of these, you did to me. And both the righteous and the unrighteous responded by saying, respond by saying, when did we see you naked? When did we see you in prison? When did we see you hungry? So there's a way in which all of us live all of our lives, whether we're faithful or unfaithful, all of us live all of our, all of our lives not quite aware of how near God is to us. Like Jacob, we may have moments where we wake up and say, surely the Lord was in this place and I did not know it. And and I think part of becoming people of prayer and people of the Spirit is people who become more and more aware of the fact that God is always with us, that he's nearer to us than we can imagine, and that our hospitality is not about us acting for a God who's passively waiting to respond to us, but it's us finally responding to a God who's constantly calling out to us. And so I I think we're we're called to hospitality. But that's not what I want to focus on today. What I want to focus on is is Sarah's laughter. And it's easy, and it's mistaken, to, to mock her for it. Because first, she's not the first one to laugh. Earlier, God has spoken this word of promise to Abraham, and we're told that Abraham fell down laughing. He was so overwhelmed by the idea that he and Sarah were going to have a son, that he literally fell down laughing at God. Sarah is much more discreet, much more genteel about it. She she laughs to herself. And she is laughing because the thought of having a son in her old age with Abraham, no no less, is just unthinkable for her. And I do believe that for many of us, facing this old problem perhaps for the first time, or at least facing it in a new way, this old problem of racism can seem overwhelming. When we start talking about reforming politics and reforming police and reforming schools and reforming healthcare, reforming the way we do our ministries, it can can just seem like too much. And some of us, perhaps, feel that the challenge that people are bringing against racism is in the process bringing a challenge against things we hold precious. You know, for instance, to take a, a controversial topic head on, I think for a lot of people, the removal of Confederate statues is obviously the right thing to do. And personally, I, I, I agree. I mean, I, I think they, they should be. But of course, I know that for many people, there there is a connection to family and to history that seems threatened by the thought of removing those statues. I think it's a mistake. I think it's a misunderstanding of what those statues represent and what we need to do in this moment to truly address our history of racial abuse and oppression. But I do have sympathy for people who feel that to deal with racism is to call into question even the good things in their history. And, and I, I think one of the ways that this, this hit me recently is I, I think underneath what is often called fragility, white fragility, is just human trauma. And again, I, I don't mean to downplay in any way that there are 
ways in which people are just too fragile. They're defensive of the wrong things. I think we're all complicit in racism in ways we can't now imagine. And, and years from now, hopefully, we will see and be able to see how we were deceived and be merciful to ourselves even while we are rejecting the evil. But perhaps this story can, can help make the point. Julie and I just uh, a week or so ago went out for our 20th anniversary and we'd gone to the mall in Tampa and we at one point had stopped to eat and had taken some bags, a couple of bags to the car and we were coming back in to go to one more store. And when we were coming back in, there was a woman rushing out and she stopped us, stepped in front of us to stop us. And breathlessly, pale, obviously frightened, she warned us that there were demonstrations, that's the word she used, demonstrations happening inside. But we'd been inside and we had seen that there was a group of 50 or so young people, mostly high school kids, who were sitting in in protest. They were moving around at various places in the mall doing a sit-in um, in protest against brutality and, in, and racism and white supremacy. And we had seen this for the last couple of hours. And, of course, it was, it was perfectly peaceful and quiet. They're, they're, they were simply sitting silently in front of stores. But for this woman, it stirred up fear. And, and my first response to her was anger and annoyance that she would be such she, – she would clutch her pearls, literally – But, but the truth is, almost immediately I realized that I don't know her story, and I don't know what real traumas underlie that very real fragility. So, so don't mishear me. I hope I've been with you long enough and you've known me well enough to know what I'm trying to say here. I, I do think that our complicity in racism is, is something we have to own and reject. And I do think a lot of us are far too fragile about it. We're far too defensive. We're far too quick to defend ourselves. And, and we need tough love and we need hard conversations. But in the midst of that hard, difficult confrontation, we need to remember that people are traumatized and traumatized in ways we cannot imagine. And that there is no easy straight line from their response to racism to what's actually funding that response, fueling that response in terms of their own pain. Now, I say all of that to say that when we start to feel the weight of all that, that we're not just dealing with racism and white supremacy, we're not just dealing with a history, hundreds of years of history of oppression, we're also dealing with the ways in which all of that is entangled with good and with the destruction evil has brought about in our lives. That the racism that's in me is entangled in my love for my family, in my life with my family, in my identity and understanding of myself, and it's entangled with everything that's broken in me. It's entangled with, with everything that the enemy has done to harm me. And so cutting that away, ridding myself of it, or letting God rid me of it, is a painstaking process. It, it's like cutting cancer away from a precious organ, from, from an organ that's, that's necessary for life. Or it's like bone marrow transplant, right? It, it is it's painful and risky. And, and so with all that said, I want to think about Sarah's laughter differently. I, I think she's laughing, and I think she's laughing cynically. But I understand why she would laugh. 
I mean, she's lived a long, hard life. She's seen a lot of things. And there is no reason for her, no reason for her to believe that what she's being told will happen. And what has to be awakened in her is faith. A faith that's not unreasonable, but it's also not reasonable. It's something that grasps God beyond experience, that grasps the word of God as something true in spite of what we've experienced. So, so the first thing I want to say is that we must not be cynical, but we must not be cynical about our own cynicism or cynical about other people's cynicism. We have to understand that there's a reason that people feel overwhelmed by this. And there's a reason not only that, that white people feel overwhelmed at the responsibility they suddenly are coming aware of having, but also that people of color, people who've suffered the racism, how easy it would be for them to laugh cynically at the thought that this time white people are serious, that this time churches are serious, that this time Christians are going to do the right thing. But for all of us, the call of the gospel is beyond cynicism. Again, not because we easily dismiss it. We understand why people would be cynical, but God can be trusted anyway. And this is what I think we see in the response of the angel to Sarah. And this is what I want to leave you with. A difficult word, I know. And made all the more difficult by the fact that I'm having to record it and share it with you electronically. We're not in the room together. You can't sense what I'm feeling, and I can't sense what you're feeling. But I hope that in spite of all these barriers, you can hear what it is the Lord wants us to hear. And th this is what I believe it is. Don't be cynical. Don't even be cynical about your cynicism or others' cynicism. Be understanding. There's a reason that people are overwhelmed, especially people who've suffered racism for generations. There's a reason that people are angry. And much of that anger, if not all of that anger, is justified. There's a reason people are afraid. And much of that fear is justified. But what we need is something else. We need more than just sympathy for, the, for people's fears and anger. We need trust in God. And the angel's response, the Lord's response to Sarah's laughter is to call it out, but not to mock her, not to shame her, not to bring her on the carpet and force her to face it. He laughs with her in order to free her from laughing at herself. He, he laughs with her in order to free her from cynicism. This, this is what I think the laughter of God does. That, that there's something holy about learning to laugh with God in the face of whatever is coming against us. In the face of the impossibility. We laugh because we know God is the one who does the impossible. You, you've heard before about gallows humor, right? Which, which is my favorite form of humor. And those of you who know me... That makes perfect sense to you. But I think Christian humor is, is a form of gallows humor. It's, it's a humor of Good Friday and, and Easter. It's a, it's a humor of, of Pentecost. It's a humor of Easter. It's a humor of Lent. It's the, it's the humor of facing everything that is wrong in the world without being overcome by it. The way Romans says it is that Abraham faced the fact that he was as good as dead and did not waver in his trust in God. And what we have to do in this moment is recognize that we are up against impossible odds. 
but we're up against those odds with one another and with a God who is for us in the impossible and who can do the impossible. And then we can afford to laugh. We can afford to laugh, not dismissively, not derisively, not out of some sense of despair, not out of some sense of overwhelmedness at evil or our own weakness, but out of confidence that God is good in spite of everything. This is how I hear that old call and response in, in, black, in black church tradition of God is good all the time. God is good. Not as some kind of report on the status of our lives. It's not like everything that's happening in our lives is good. No, those people, our brothers and sisters, have been saying that for generations, not because they're saying life is going the way they want it to go, but because they know how to trust God in the midst of life not going the way they want it to go. They're saying in defiance. They're laughing in spite of everything. My daughter Zoe and I and Rebecca went to the the march last weekend, last Saturday, uh, that, that ended in Mun Park and downtown uh, and we we were there. We dropped off some water coolers. We were there waiting for for all those who were marching to arrive. And when they when they arrived, the first thing that happened is that the band started playing like praise and worship music, happy, joyful, dancing music. And I was crying and angry and confused and overwhelmed at the at the response. And and what I sensed in that moment is that this laughter, this dancing, this singing, it was not a diversion. It wasn't like we were laughing to distract ourselves from the pain. It's not that we were singing to forget. We were singing because we remembered. We were singing, and and I couldn't have started the song, but I was caught up in the song, in the joy, almost in the dancing, but not quite. In that I saw that this this is what our brothers and sisters in the black church have been saying for generations. That you can rejoice in the Lord no matter what is happening. And it's out of that joy that we find the strength to resist the evil that wants to overwhelm us. I, I end with this point. So I recently read a book by Elie Wiesel, most famously the author of Night, a Holocaust survivor, and a book called Messengers of God. And one of the chapters, the one that I focused on, was a chapter on Isaac, who Wiesel says is his favorite biblical character. And he ends that with a passage I want to read to you in closing. Let us return, he says, to the question we asked at the beginning. Why was the most tragic of our ancestors named Isaac, a name which evokes and signifies laughter? Here is why. As the first survivor, Isaac had to teach us, the future survivors, that it is possible to suffer and despair an entire lifetime and still not give up the art of laughter. Isaac, of course, never freed himself from the traumatizing scenes that violated his youth. It's a reference to Isaac being bound on the altar, nearly sacrificed by his father. The Holocaust had marked him and continued to haunt him forever. Yet he remained capable of laughter, and in spite of everything, he did laugh.
And this, I think, is the word the Lord has for us. That in spite of everything, we do laugh. We don't laugh at ourselves. We don't laugh at others. We don't even laugh at God, although he's perfectly willing to accept it. We laugh together with one another and with God in spite of everything. And like Sarah at the end of our reading for today, we hold our Isaac in our arms and laugh because we trust a God who does the impossible, who does what cannot be done. We laugh because we know whatever is impossible for us remains entirely possible for the God who calls all things from nothing into being and raises the dead. And so, God, my prayer for my brothers and sisters at Oasis, for myself, is that I will learn to laugh, not like Sarah laughed at first, but like she laughed in the end, and learn to laugh with you because we know that, God, you are working all things together for our good and the good of everyone. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We hope you were blessed by today's podcast. If you liked what you heard and want to support us, you can do so by subscribing wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can leave us a review on iTunes, and if you want to contribute to Oasis financially, you can go to oasischurch.org. May the Lord bless you and keep you, and may God's face shine upon you and give you peace. Amen.